This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. If you have a Bible, turn with Act to me with, uh, to Acts chapter seventeen. So, verse sixteen, Acts chapter seventeen and verse sixteen <clears throat> says this: While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's not start, he's not supposed to be starting yet. He's just waiting for the other guys to arrive. Uh, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols. Uh, he saw everywhere in the city. Uh, He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, as you do. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Because Christianity is always foreign when it first comes. Uh, whether that's to use an individual or into different cultures, it always comes. Apart from the original kind of recipients in, in Israel, Christianity has always been a foreign religion coming to a new place. Uh, anyway, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. I mean, Greece as the kind of uh, bedrock, the kind of uh, breeding ground for Western civilization, was always debating with different cultural ideas and how they could improve or change society. That was kind of the nature of the Greek culture. Um, So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown god. Well, this god, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the god who made the world and everything in it. Since he is lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. I mean, if we're his offspring, how could he be a stone idol? It doesn't make sense. So he's, he's kind of puncturing their lack of logic. 
God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him for. He has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed, and he, approved, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Christ, of course. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Pretty cool. So I've got four points, easy points, uh, and really under the overall umbrella is do we, how much do we really care as believers? How much do we really care about those who don't know that what we've found is the truth? That's essentially the kind of central single thrust of, of the message, but I've broken it into four points. The first one is this, are you concerned? So the English translations uh, describe Paul's reaction in Athens variously as distressed or deeply troubled or provoked within himself or stirred. Now, whenever I speak to believers, I'm sure you, you, this is true of you, uh, they will always express a desire to want to communicate effectively, winsomely, appropriately the good news of, of Jesus. All believers really would want to share the truth that they found, the joy that they've discovered in, in Christ. Uh, that's never really uh, not there, the idea that, no, no, we mustn't tell anyone about this secret that we found. We must keep it hidden. No one's doing that. But it, we find ourselves facing a number of different challenges. Now, before I came, I asked for a number of different leaders and so on in the, in the church here to fill out I can't remember how many questions. It was like a 35-question uh, questionnaire. Uh, was it 35 or something like that? It used to be 50. I was nice to you. Yeah, it just took me so long to go through all the answers that I just thought, I've got to cut this down. Um, but, uh, you know, and some of what I'm saying today has kind of come out of the information that leaders have given about some of the challenges that we're facing in specifically in Cheltenham. And one of them, of course, is that the idea of going to church just isn't something that people do anymore. It's not in their kind of minds to just come to church. So we then have to be individually much more kind of open to engaging in conversation uh, with people before that actual process or that invitation is actually made. Christianity is seen as either irrelevant or a little bit over-enthusiastic. So either, it's funny, isn't it? People, uh, uh, they, they assume they know, they know what Christianity is, and it's either completely irrelevant, and they can't quite work out why you would still be kind of holding this particular view or believing these particular things, or you're someone who's a slightly over-enthusiastic person who has this kind of strange spiritual thing, they're not quite sure what it is, but you're keen about it. And it seems to be good for you, and that's great for you. So how do we respond to these different, uh, these different challenges that we face. And when Paul visited Athens, it's a different kind of challenge, but the impulse is the same. He was concerned for the people. There was a deep concern for the people that were there in Athens. Why? Well, it wasn't because 
these Athenians, they were too rich, you know, and ran away with materialism. It wasn't because they were too poor and there were all these social problems or that they were too drunk or they were too kind of lascivious or whatever or that they were in trouble in their lives. It, that wasn't what stirred Paul. Now, some of those things should stir us, but that wasn't what primarily stirred Paul. What primarily stirred Paul was that these people were trusting in false promises. They were hoping in false promises or false gods as were literally physically in front of him. People are still trying to find satisfaction and purpose in their lives and that, that's the, so they should. They should be looking for satisfaction and purpose in their lives but for whatever reason, Christ isn't in that picture. He's not in that picture. Paul was distressed by that. He was distressed, so he found, he managed to find a little shrine that says to an unknown God. That was the crack in the door that enabled him to actually proclaim Christ. And let me just ask you, how distressed are you? How challenged? How, how do you feel about that? We tend to kind of think, well, it's ordinary, it's normal. It's kind of, I feel more sorry for Christians. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to feel like, well, actually, that's normal life. Paul had something additional. He was distressed by this. Christ isn't in their lives. Christ isn't in their story. And that, that bothered him, and he took action. And in one sense, he was responding to what he saw. We can see that by his argument. He, he uh, connects his argument to what he saw. But his approach, and the Christian approach generally, and this is really important for you and I, is that he initiated the evangelistic moment. He didn't stand there and kind of somehow wait for others to start the conversation. He started the conversation with those who had no interest whatsoever, never even heard the message that he was going to bring to them. That is a basic Christian principle. That's a basic principle. He sees the city as being in need of truth, and he sees himself as being on a mission to bring that truth to them, even though he's just waiting, remember? He's not like, we've geared it all up, we've got the banners, we've got the, you know, the synthesizer, we're, in, we're ready. He's, he's, it's not, he's just waiting. But because he's a believer, he's got this kind of missional thing in him called the Holy Spirit. He's, he's got this sense of awareness of the context that he's in, that these folk don't have Christ in their lives. And even though I'm waiting for my friends to arrive and then we're going to kind of begin the next phase of, of the mission, he as a Christian sees himself as being sent to begin that conversation. That's very important that you get that, that that's normal. That's not abnormal. It's normal for you to want people to know about Christ. And the next bit, the challenging bit, is it's normal for you to feel the responsibility to actually initiate that conversation. We don't act that way, but that's the norm that we see in Scripture. And so in the church that I lead, our primary missional focus is, of course, Cape Town, the town that we're in, just like your primary missional focus is Cheltenham, not, you know, the Bahamas. 
So the, the mission to renew Cape Town through the gospel is, is pretty broad. So there's a kind of, there's a difference between mission and evangelism. I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think it will help us. The mission that we're on to reach Cheltenham, say, is, includes evangelism, but is bigger than evangelism. It's more than evangelism. It includes serving the poor. It includes being concerned about housing. According to some of the surveys, it includes parking and the state of the roads. Uh, and these are big issues for you in Cheltenham, and I'm here to help. Not. You know, it includes trying to engage in the business life of the church and the arts and family life and all of these different things. So I'm trying to develop a distinction in our thinking between mission and evangelism. Just to help us clarify, mission is the advance of the kingdom in every area of life, engaging in and influencing the life of our town at every level, spiritually, socially, culturally. It's a broad kind of brief. If, don't get confused because you could be doing lots of things that are missional and think you're being evangelistic and can't understand why the growth isn't happening. But evangelism is different from that. Evangelism is directly telling people about Jesus. Yeah, That it's actually talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why you need to respond to that message. That's what evangelism is. Mission is broader than that. Uh, mission is the whole context in which we live until we either die or Jesus comes again. So mission is the overarching context for all of life. Evangelism is a vital part of that. I don't know if that helps you, but the power to bring change, therefore, is in that gospel message itself. So Paul, he, he turns up, he, he's not got a band, he's not got a team, he's not got a, he's just, all he's got is the message itself. And he is crazy enough to believe that the message communicated could actually turn someone from a position of hostility into a believer. The church historically has always believed that. Our generation is a little bit nervous of whether that's true or not. We, we, and we kind of majored on the other stuff, and we're not so sure, well, I'm not sure if that person would receive this. You know, that's not, that's not initiating the conversation. That's kind of being more back-footed. But there's a difference between mission and uh, evangelism. So we have church buildings in Clough Street in Cape Town, and if you look it up, it's the coolest street in the in the Southern Hemisphere, possibly in the world. Um, that may have been a slight exaggeration. Well, no, it's pretty cool. But it's a beautiful place. It's a wonderful part of the city centre of, of Cape Town. And I've been getting to know local businesses, restaurants and so on and, and so forth. And I got to know, I've been developing a good uh, friendship with uh, an Italian guy from Rome who started an Italian restaurant in Clough Street. And so if you're going to eat Italian, you want to go to an Italian restaurant that's actually been founded and currently being run by an Italian, obviously. He was moaning, you know, it's, it's, it's been difficult for him in the South African context compared to restaurants that he'd started in Italy. And he was moaning a little bit about all the administrative red tape and how he's got to get all these ID books and documents 
certified, you know, of his employees and stuff. And so I said, well, I can help you with that. It's time consuming from, it's expensive, but I'm a commissioner of oaths in, in South Africa, so I can certify documents. So I said to him, well, I, well, I'll do that. So I invited him over the road to my office. We sat down, we spent an hour. I did all the documents with him, checking that they they'd say, you know, this is a genuine copy of that document and so on. And, and then we got into a bigger conversation about the challenges that he's faced in terms of employees and making a profit and all of that. And by the end of it, I said to him, uh, no, you know, he knows I'm a pastor. He knows I lead this church. is right there. We're in the church building. We're in my office. It's a very trendy office. It fits Cliff Street. But I, I said to him, look, can I pray for you? He said, sure. So I'm able to actually pray with him. And that's wonderful. Now, that wasn't evangelism. Not yet. It's kind of pre-evangelism. That, I would say, is missional. It's connecting with someone in the community, someone who needs help. You can, can, you can provide some kind of answer or some kind of sounding board for projects and whatever, and praying together. I am hoping that before too long, an, an opportunity will open up where I can actually share the gospel with him. He probably assumes that he is, in a generic sense, a Christian already, of course. Um, but now he's talking about wanting to fund a feeding program. Um, there's an Italian chef who started these uh, restaurants where you can't pay. Uh, they put a ton of money into doing them up the decor, and the food is absolutely... He's a three Michelin star uh, restaurateur, and uh, he does it for free, and they're opening up in different cities in the world, actually, now. These free kind of... And the, I, his idea uh, was to give people an experience of quality that would actually dignify them. It was, uh, by experiencing quality of good food and good decor, their own kind of sense of ambition for themselves would, would rise up as well. It's an interesting thing that's happening. So now this guy, uh, my friend across the road, is saying, I want to do something like that. So I don't know where this is going to go, but that, I would say, is, is mission rather than evangelism. And we need to be doing that kind of thing. Paul obviously wanted to help people respond to the message easily, so he makes that kind of connection. But the impulse for direct, overt conversation came from Paul. It didn't come from the people that he was standing before. William Booth and the Salvation Army in the 1800s, they launched these new, essentially we call them church plants, right across Britain and then across the world. And he said, when they sent a couple into a new, or a little team into a new town, don't tell me your city's too hard or the people aren't interested, that they won't pay attention to you. Get their attention. That was his advice. (laughs) And if you read some of the history of the Salvation Army, you'll read some of the crazy antics they got up to to try and get the message across to people. They saw that it was their responsibility to communicate to the people. They weren't passively waiting for some additional thing to happen. So there's lots of crazy ideas, like they carry a coffin through the street and get a big crowd following the coffin, and then the guy would, the lid would burst off the top, the guy would jump out and start preaching about the reality of the resurrection. There's lots <laughs> of things like that. Absolutely any idea that they could use. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
That is, the initiative is coming from God, the initiative is coming from Jesus, and the initiative needs to be coming from us. So the principle is spiritual life comes from the outside. There's a, it's a breaking in, it's an intervention from God's side. Spurgeon said in his brilliant book, The Soul Winner, he, he says, we're sent to raise the dead. We're not waiting for signs of life from the dead as a trigger or a prompt to take action. Spurgeon believed, and he, remember, was arguably, along with William Booth, the most successful church planter and church growth, um, well, he just saw himself as a preacher of the gospel, uh, person of his day. He's saying, we're not waiting for signs of life from those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We are sent to raise the dead. That's our job. And we, and I'll come to this as the fourth point, we'll get to it, is that the message itself, we have to start believing that the message itself has power. That it's not just about whether you were completely perfect in the way you welcomed someone into your home or you conversed with them. Because you're not completely perfect, you're going to mess it up, it's going to, you know, you're going to be mistakes. It's whether the message or not is powerful. And you might say, okay, listen, Paul in Athens, all right, he was bold extraordinarily gifted. So was Spurgeon. So was William Booth. These are all exceptions. Well, the answer to that, in my opinion, is isn't this whole Christian thing about following Jesus? Isn't it about serving others? Isn't it about discipleship? Isn't this whole topic that we're looking at today a discipleship issue? Christian discipleship is about becoming more like Jesus, yes? It's about your life being more aligned with Christ's. It's, it's not going your own way. You've been yoked together with Christ. So whereas before you'd pull in this direction, you'd do what you want, now you're saying, no, I'm living a new life. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm yoked to him. I'm going to follow him. Well, listen to this. This is a brilliant discipleship promise from Jesus. Follow me. Good. Follow me. Yeah. And I will make you fishers of men. Nice discipleship promise. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's not a promise about a personality type. That's not a promise about gifting. That's just about what Christian discipleship, that's about serving. Most of us think, well, how many people have I led to the Lord? Uh, None. So evangelism isn't my thing. It's just not my thing. It's not what I'm gifted at. So I will kind of find other ways to serve. It's good to be serving in the life of the church. But with this promise, Jesus is clearly saying that he will make those who follow him. He will fashion them into fishers of men, which means basically those who draw people to Christ. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. In other words, he's creating something new in you that wasn't there before as a result of you following him. So the, it's the same Greek word that Matthew uses about God created them in Matthew 19.4. He made them male and female. He made them. It's the same Greek word for made. He created them male and female I will make you, I will create this in you, 
as a follower of mine, I will create this in you. It wasn't there before, I'm going to create it in you. So I want to say to a promise like that, it's a discipleship promise, I want to say, yes Lord, like Mary did, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me, not according to my past, my experience, my expectation, my self-confidence, my personality type, my set of giftings, my strength finders. You know, let, me, let it not be according to me, to any of them. Let it be according to me, according to your word. Let it be according to your word in me. Mary said that. God was about to create something absolutely brand new in human history in Mary, and her response was, let it be to me according to your word. I will make you, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But we, we just, we get hooked on this personality type thing. You know, that, does that mean I'm going to become someone who doesn't mind kind of slightly rudely interrupting conversations to talk about God now? In a, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to become a, that slightly awkward, socially clumsy person who but somehow gets away with it but doesn't have many friends. You know, I don't... <laughs> I don't want to be a Christian extrovert. I'm not that. I'm not going to wear a thing or carry a or whatever it is. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to. I want to just. I want. It's no. Jesus isn't saying I'm going to force you to become someone that you're not in some kind of inauthentic way. Follow me, and I will make you. It's you. It's your personality and your gifting and your style and your story and your experience and. In your life, he's going to make you someone who becomes a fisher of men, someone who can draw others. And then I, I mentioned the gift of evangelism. This is a red herring. You know, I don't have that gift because I haven't led... You know, we think witnessing is a gifting issue. It's not a gifting issue. In, tw- in 2009, the Barna organization did a study on spiritual gifts and it showed that only 1% of the church in America, according to their sample... Uh, felt they had the gift of evangelism. And they were really concerned about it. What does this mean for the future of the church? Only 1% of the American church has the gift of evangelism. Where's it going? It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go into the world. It's going to be a problem. And they were really concerned about that. But they shouldn't have been. They shouldn't have been concerned about that at all. And the reason that they shouldn't have been concerned that only 1% of the church said, I've got the gift of evangelism, it's an easy answer. It's because there's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. It's not, a, it's not listed as a gift anywhere. There isn't a gift of evangelism. It's the wrong question. The right question is, are you a witness? Are you a witness? That's the right question. And that's a question that every single one of us who is a Christian here can answer. The answer is, yes, I am a witness. I'm either a good one that's learning to be a fisher of men and drawing people to Christ, or I'm a silent one, uh, silent but deadly, who, can, <laughs> who isn't intentionally drawing people to Christ and we don't know what kind of aroma is coming off them, or we're a bad one. We're, I don't know why I shouldn't have said that. Or you're a bad witness and you're putting people off. But either way, you're a good one, a silent one, or a, <laughs> or a bad one, you know, you're a witness. That's the right question. We're called upon to be witnesses, however you may be gifted. If someone said to you, oh, I, never, I don't come to the worship time, you know, I appreciate all of this and everything, but I, I don't come to the worship time. Uh, I, come, I only come for later for the notices that Abby does so well and, and for the sermon because I don't have the gift of worshipping. That's absurd. I don't have the gift of worshipping. Sorry, I'm just not going to participate. Or, or I don't have the gift of fellowshipping. Actually, 
Yeah, there are people who don't have the gift of fellowship. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, you might say, I'm not an evangelist, but that's not what we're talking about. Presumably, the 1% who answered that survey were people who corrected the question and said, oh, yeah, I identify as an evangelist. It's okay to say you're not an evangelist or you're not a prophet or a teacher or whatever, but we're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to be, well, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Whatever your style or personality is. Rick Warren illustrates this beautifully. He says, look, in a courtroom, you've got the lawyer, you've got the advocate, you've got the judge, you've got the lawyer and you've got the advocate. Now the advocate, the barrister, the the lawyer, he knows or she knows (coughs) all the procedures of the court, very familiar, and uh, knows all the kind of uh, internal processes, tricks of the trade, when to raise an objection, when not to, what's admissible, all of that. They know all of that. And there are some evangelists who are like that. They can answer these difficult questions and it's, none of it's fresh and new to them. They've considered these things. It's, they've managed to hold these things in their minds and that's, the, that's that kind of evangelist. But there's someone else in, in a court case who can swing the case absolutely. It could be going completely in this direction and this person comes in gives their testimony, and the whole case can be shifted. And that's a credible witness. And and what does a witness do? I mean, does a witness need to know all about the court processes and the precedents, the previous uh, legal precedents that were made in similar cases and similar things before? No. The witness just comes in and says what they heard, what they saw, what what they experienced. You know why? They just tell what they know. That's it. But a credible witness can change, change the outcome radically powerfully. And your witness, your story is admissible evidence. Oh, no, I don't know all these things, the ins and outs, and all these answers to this. No, no, no. Your story is admissible evidence as someone is considering whether or not this could be true. So don't wipe yourself off. Write yourself off. We, we are all potentially fishers of men. We can, we can do this. Yeah. We can actually do this without undergoing a strange personality change. So Paul was concerned. He was distressed. He was acting. That was my first question. Are you concerned? Second question. Are you engaging with people? Verse 17. He begins to reason with them. He spoke daily with them. He starts debating and conversing. He's supposed to be waiting, but he can't help himself. He's already actually engaging. So his concern moves to action. Now, there are numbers of different things that we as churches and as church leaders can do to kind of facilitate this, make this easier for everyone. And and again, you don't necessarily... Some of these are less directly evangelistic and some are more evangelistic. But, uh, for example, uh, you know, book clubs are something that, uh, things that uh, particularly our women at Jubilee have been involved in for many different years. Maybe you start your own book club, maybe you join a book club and there's only two of you or three of you who are believers in that book club, but you're immediately engaging with people around the issues of the day. And of course, if you're in somebody else's book club, and this actually happened quite a long time ago now, that when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, the suggestion was made in this one particular women's book club, let's do Fifty Shades of Grey. So the challenge that our Christian women had, uh, there were a couple of uh, our women in that group, was 
what do we do now? Do we uh, not participate? And there was quite strong views about this. No, you shouldn't participate. You shouldn't read it. You shouldn't. But there was, there was another view, which is, hold on a second, even though you might not want to read the book itself, do you really want to withdraw the Christian perspective on how relationships should work from that discussion? You see? Now, you don't ever really need to face those issues. You can just be an armchair critic until you're in the situation. But if you're engaging with people and with their lives, there will be issues that come up that you need to... Now, I'm not suggesting you go and read uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I haven't read it. But um, you'll be pleased to know I have not read it. But, um, you know, these are some of the issues that need to be talked through, you know. And so, so you'd have to, there's different perspectives. Or Beth Moore does these fantastic Bible studies. And again, our women have done these brilliant Bible studies in their homes. Non-believers have come along. Part of the thing that came up in the surveys quite a lot was the need for marriage, a marriage course of some kind. Well, we've, we've run... Uh, Three marriage courses. We've taken in total 150 different couples through the, the marriage course that's done by the Alpha. Except we did all the talks live. We got different people to do the talks and we had different people to kind of uh, interview couples around particular issues. So it was all live rather than just watching videos. Um, and that was partly because in our context, it doesn't really work. It's kind of, this is South Africa. It doesn't really... Kind of, I mean, it might be easier in your situation, but um, we did it live. <laughs> okay, everyone get a wife, you'll be like this. You know, it's like, you know, that's not necessarily going to fly. Um, so, and the other thing we've done, we've done things like big screen debates between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. You know, absolutely brilliant in making a big deal of it. You know, sending out invites. You know, that people want to see Dawkins take down a Christian. And then, of course, what they find is, actually, there's strong arguments on the Christian side. And that could be great. Christmas Day, Good Friday, we did a Good Friday service. After years of not doing anything, we finally did one. And I, I hired in this classical quartet, and we did these readings from C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and Jeremy Manley Hopkins, uh, interspersed with, with uh, short uh, classical pieces, a little bit of Bach, a bit of Vivaldi. It was, a, yeah, it was fantastic. We had loads and loads of people. Come to that. So, I mean, again, Cheltenham Literary Festival, next year, maybe you could think of something creative, become part of it, rather than it just kind of interrupting what you're doing as a church, why not kind of somehow try and get involved in, in, in a way, or put something on, or invite, you know, speakers in, and maybe even become part of the festival, why not? Uh, Christians have been writing for generations. Um, but yeah, after dinner speaker, we did that on Thursday. Um, I, we did an art exhibition uh, and a literary event combined last year, in September last year. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds of people kind of at the launch of the, well, a year after the launch of <coughs> our congregation. And I mean, again, hundreds and hundreds of people came. So if you do, it, if you do things well, you know, Sundays, we've, we've, again, these are easy invite things that church can do, that you can... And it doesn't all need to be run by the leaders. You know, it can, there can be different gifts coming into the process and pulling weight and, you know, doing stuff. Loads of different ideas. There's different Sundays. We took 10 Sundays, 10 objections, 10 minutes per objection. We just went through the whole thing, chucked them on YouTube. One of the most famous saxophonists in South Africa, who we had also got to know just because of the being in, attending the jazz kind of scene in Cape Town, 
He saw the first one on YouTube and he said, right, I'm going to that church for, that, for these 10 weeks to hear all these different, you know, how, how can, can you prove God exists and what about suffering and what about science and, you know, is the Bible reliable and aren't there contradictions and all those kinds of questions. He really enjoyed all of that. Um, but are you engaging personally? That's kind of church stuff. What about you? Are you... What are people's concerns? Are you engaging with them? What about the business leaders? What's happening? Paul spoke daily. Are you speaking? Paul was confident, wasn't he, in this context? He looks like he knows what he's doing. He's, he doesn't say to himself, well, you know, I'm from a small nation. I'm in you know, a little town there. It's a small kind of religion. It's very kind of closed in Judaism. I'm not sure... But no, he gets into Athens and he's shoulder to shoulder. He, he's prepared, he's ready. Now, maybe you do need to do a bit of reading that isn't just about you know, your own devotional life with Christ, but is dealing with some of the objections that people have towards the Christian faith. There's a book by, uh, I forget his name now, um, it's called uh, Christian, uh, Questions That Christians Hope No One Will Ask, Mark Mittelberg and someone else. It's a, great, it's a great introduction. And again, you don't have to stuff your brain through with all the answers to try, but maybe just getting a little bit more familiar with some of the objections that people have would help you. It won't hurt you anyway, that's for sure. Um, so are you concerned? Are you engaging? Thirdly, are you relevant? So Paul seems to be knowledgeable. He seems to know his stuff. He's not a novice when it comes to the leading ideas of his day. He's not taken by surprise. He's not so wrapped up in the Christian subculture that he can't actually relate to the outside world. That's really important. He's comfortable entering both the synagogue and then going into the public square, it says, and debating with Greek philosophers, which is not for the faint-hearted. He quickly grasps the context that he's in, and he works within that. And understanding context is really, really important because something that works in New York or Cape Town or London might not work in Cheltenham. So you've really got to, you know, connect with the folk that you live amongst and think through, how can I be relevant to folk here? You can, one of the problems in the past, I think, is we went to big conferences that were about global mission and we kind of tried in a mini way to reproduce something of that in the local churches. But for your neighbor just wandering in, it's like, well, you know, what is this? So we, we need to think of the context that we're, we're in. I deliberately try and read as widely as I can. I want to read the latest and the strongest objections to the Christian faith that, that I can. I want my kids to be absolutely ready to answer any objection that they... Uh, we said to our kids, we want the, the, we want the dinner table to be the, the place where you first hear this strong objection, not the lecture hall at the, at when you get to university, when suddenly the person who you've now invested with authority, which should only be in their field of expertise, because it doesn't always stay there, but should only be... That's the authority you give them is only in that field... Um, but, and then they kind of throw a whew over this side. It's the first time you've heard the objection. You're thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. We want the family dinner table to be the place where we've, we've thought through these questions. Um, and so I think maybe we need to be uh, 
upskilled to use an American term, you know, more and more in terms of directly connecting with where uh, people are at. And you don't have to be a keen reader to be able to do that, by the way. So some of us love to read. Others aren't readers. Well, just talk to people. You know, just talk to people. Ask them questions. What do they believe? How do they come to that belief? Why do they think that? You know, if you, if you keep asking people questions, people love to talk about themselves. You know, I spent the whole of Thursday evening talking about myself, and it was great fun. You know, <laughs> people love to talk about themselves and their lives and all of that, and, and you can make a connection there. You can, you can work it out. Uh, people love talking. So ask God to help you initiate uh, conversations. Paul was concerned, engaging with people, relevant, and finally, which I come back to a point I made right at the beginning, are you confident in the gospel itself that it can produce results? So Paul was winsome, but he was also authentic. He wanted to win people. He wanted to become connected in, a, in that friendly way, but he also doesn't soften the message. Verse 30, he says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. So he's, he gets to, he connects with them, he connects with the context, he connects with their way of thinking. He quotes their poetry. If you want to find out the guts of a culture, you go to the poets, obviously. He connects to the poetry, and then he preaches the gospel into that. So he's built this bridge. I mean, the challenge for some of the great apologists is they love the contextualization, and they love the literary stuff, and they love the connecting, but they wouldn't go right across the bridge to say, and judgment and sin <laughs> and righteousness in Christ and repentance, which is what Paul does. We need to be confident like Paul is in the gospel itself, that we are confidently saying to our culture, hey, Jesus is the answer. As Abby said right at the beginning, Jesus, fully God, fully man, born into history, an intervention from God's side took place because we needed rescuing. We can't work off our sins. We can't, through ritual, cleanse ourselves. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So it's not the passage of time or the fact that you acted out of character or any other mitigating circumstance that somehow erases the stain of sin that's in the soul. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse that stain. Let, come now, says the Lord, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. He can wash away all the nonsense and the silliness and the foolishness, the sin that we've done. And he does that by sending this perfect Jesus. Not an ordinary man who, like the rest of us men and women, have sinned, but a perfect man, a God-man. He never sinned. He lived a perfect, morally pure life. And then, as a deliberate sacrifice and exchange, he dies on the cross in our place. Our sins are put upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Somehow, our sins are placed upon him. And in the moment that he dies, the punishment for our sin is meted out, is poured out. The wrath of God is poured out upon Christ and not upon us. And we, if we turn, if we recognize that that's true, 
If we believe in the Lord Jesus, we turn from our sin and put our trust in him, we repent and believe, God says you're forgiven. You're so forgiven that you can come to heaven. You're so forgiven in that moment that the Holy Spirit can come into you. He can actually change you from the inside out. Something that would be unthinkable for the Holy Spirit to do. The Holy Spirit believes in justification by faith. As soon as you believe, the Holy Spirit can enter into your life and you'll, you'll be born again. You'll be born, that's why Jesus used that term, born again. It's like a brand new thing happens to you. And it's what every soul wants without knowing it. Like these Athenians, they've got all their false hopes in all these false, they've got all their hopes in all these false promises, but none of it satisfies, ever really truly satisfies. Temporary satisfaction, but not lasting satisfaction. Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Satisfaction. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. That's, that's what we're proclaiming to people. That's what we're telling. And, and with Paul, it was mixed results. Some people thought, this guy's a nutcase. I don't like him. Paul didn't go, oh no, I'm never going to speak again. <laughs> because that, that person didn't like how I said and what I said and blah, blah. You know, no. But some people said he's about. They laughed at him in contempt. It says it was contempt for him. Others said, "Well, maybe. Okay, this is a new thing. I need some time. We'll think about it later on." That's why we're doing the three, two, one. It's exactly why we're doing the three, two, one. Maybe that's for you. And others said, "Actually, something happened to me as I heard this message, and I want to follow. I want to believe." That miracle can happen through the proclamation of the gospel. We need to get back to believing that. We need to be winsome, not clumsy and harsh. We need to be winsome, but the message itself is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. It can change people's lives. I know my father was converted 19 years after I was. One day I got that email and the subject line just said, saved. <laughs> what? And then read, I gave my life to Jesus. An amazing thing. Um, the, we got a, a good friend. I'll end with this story. We got a good friend in, in the city congregation uh, in Cape Town where uh, he, uh, well, this was his story, the background story, which I didn't know at all until much later. Background story, successful business guy, trader in the city, author, uh, writes for a, you know, a website that goes all over the world and all of that. And uh, he's just absolutely at the end of his tether. No satisfaction, no answers, no truth. And he decides he's going to hang himself. So he gets the dog's lead. He's got this beautiful, great big dog. What kind of dog is it? It's a St. Bernard, I should know that. And he gets the lead and he hitches it up. He's got one of these big uh, houses right on the mountain. I mean, incredibly expensive place to buy anything. Hooks the thing up puts it around his neck and he just kind of thinks it's going to break. Uh, it's a Saturday evening, so he thinks, I need rope. I'll have to wait until Monday. On Monday, I'll get the rope. I don't know if you know anything about these stats, but men follow through on suicides. The statistics seem to suggest that men follow through. They actually do it uh, more often than a kind of... It's like not doing it. It's like when a decision's been made, it's been made. So Monday morning, he's going to go and buy some sturdy rope. 
little later that evening, he phones a friend of his, Kerry, and says, can we just go for a walk tomorrow morning, maybe walk the dogs? And she said, no. Uh, she says, I'd like to talk. She said, no, I go to church on a Sunday morning. I was so proud of her when she said that. So as a Christian, what, you know, the response could have been, oh, this non-Christian guy that I know, uh, you know, friend, he, he wants to talk. This could be an opportunity. This could be a moment. I won't go to church. We'll go walking the dog. She didn't do that. She said, no, Sunday morning I go to church. That's what I do. Go to church every Sunday. Just do it. Just make a decision. You need to go to church every Sunday. Just make a decision. None of this, you know, two out of the month. Keep going. You need this regularity in your life. People who really know you know that you do. Um, so, so she says, no. So he puts the phone down or goes, Doop, and then says, um, a little bit later, he said, well, uh, could I come with you? Phone's back. Could I come with you? And she says, sure, that'd be wonderful. So they both turn up at church. I've never met him. That morning, I was preaching on the reliability and the relevance of the Bible and was going through some of the issues of manuscripts and is it trustworthy and all of that and then people's statements from around the world and different walks of life and how the Bible had changed their lives and bang. And then we got chatting afterwards. His name's Sunil. We got chatting afterwards and we just hit it off. And I said to him, we, I'd just been given a new kind of Bible study by a guy called Richard Borgenon, called One to One, uh, about, on the Gospel of John. I said to him, hey, listen, I'll tell you what, on Tuesday morning, why don't we just start working through the Gospel of John? And it'll, we'll be answering some of these questions about who Jesus is and all the rest of it. Do you want to do that? He said, sure. And he went home. He didn't commit suicide on Monday. He didn't go out and buy the rope. And for seven months, we met every Tuesday morning at 9.30 or 10. Seven months into that, every Tuesday, just about every Tuesday, he gave his life to Christ. Brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. He's baptized. We still meet every Tuesday. We're now working through Grudem's uh, Bible Doctrine or whatever it's called, <laughs> which is great. Absolutely radically saved. And I love the fact that the elements in that story included being brought into a community, the habitual regularity of coming to church, hearing something that was relevant, that was preached, and then going straight into a study. This could happen. We think these guys are they're doing so well in their lives. You'd think that. But inside it was turmoil, it was turmoil. So my question to you is, are you concerned about people as you look around? Are you concerned? Are you engaging with them? Are you relevant in your engagement? And are you confident that the gospel message can actually bring the change? Not you and your personality, but the message itself, the word of God, which is living and active and can do its work in people. And so I want to leave you with those four questions as a challenge. Amen? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.